Good evening, everybody. Before we get started with tonight's show, um, there's just a few thoughts that I wanted to, to try to share uh, before we get into the, the program proper. Um, obviously, today has been an incredibly tragic day, not only for the province of Saskatchewan, um, but for all of Canada, and particularly uh, First Nations peoples. Um, there's been a lot that's gone on today. And the name that keeps coming back to me throughout the day is the name Sunil Tripathi. Now, there's a lot of you probably haven't heard that name, but who Sunil Tripathi was, was shortly after the Boston Marathon bombings, the internet decided that they were going to try to get ahead of the criminal investigation that was going on at the time. And through a Reddit forum, there was a group of people that decided that they had identified who one of the bombers were, and they named Sunil Tripathi. Um, it turned out incredibly tragically because Sunil Tripathi's family was the, they were the recipients of death threats. They were the recipients of rape threats and nobody could find Sunil Tripathi at the time. And the reason for that was he had committed suicide uh, days prior to the bombing even happening. He had nothing to do with the Boston bombing. But because the internet had decided that they were going to try to out-police the police, uh, they unfortunately put his family through an incredible amount of hardship. Earlier today, we tweeted out that we were not going to be putting out any sort of commentary on the, the situation that was not coming directly from uh, verified sources like the RCMP are legitimate journalists. And we appreciate all the DMs that we got. We appreciate all the DMs that we get. But I just wanted to take a sec to sort of remind everybody that it's really, really important in these sorts of situations to not cause undue harm, that we make sure that the information that we're getting and the information that we're sharing is from reliable, accurate sources, especially when there is a police investigation that's ongoing, and especially when there are situations where there are people who could be really, really hurt. The reality is, is that the two suspects involved in today's senseless attacks uh, are still at large, and there's a whole lot that we don't know. This is, like I said, it's, a, it's an unbelievably tragic situation. Uh, it is both simple and complex at the same time. It's simple because anybody should be able to look at this and go, this is a tragedy and we need to wait until we have the right information uh, and we know the actual facts before we start spinning off uh, and trying to make sense of it. Um, but it's also incredibly complex because there are a lot of moving parts involved. Uh, there are a lot of social complexities that are involved and a lot of people don't know how to navigate that. I know that I don't. Um, one of the things that I like to go to in situations like this when I don't know what to do is I look to people who have more lived experience with these sort of sort of things and whether we're talking whatever the situation is. Um, but one of the, the tweets that was most impactful for me today, one of the things that I saw on social media that was most impactful for me today came from an account that both I and The Breakdown follow. Um, he's a First Nations gentleman who goes by the name of Terrell Tailfeathers. And he tweeted out, it's not the first time he's tweeted this out. I wish I could confidently say that it'll be the last, but it won't be. Uh, he tweeted this out. So we're just going to let this hang on the screen for a couple of minutes um, before we get into the, the show proper. And then we'll get into our regular programming.
Great. Going to be a bit of a hard switch tonight, um, but we have a lot to cover in the realm of Alberta politics. That's what we're going to be talking about for the most part tonight. I want to welcome everybody who's listening on Twitter Spaces. I also want to uh, welcome everybody who's watching. We're hopefully streaming. Fingers crossed. Uh, but we're welcoming everybody who's watching the live stream on YouTube. If you're watching this video after the fact on Facebook, or if you're listening to the podcast version, thank you so much for joining us. We have so much to talk about. And we're going to be joined a little bit later on by uh, Judy Mitchell McLean. We haven't quite figured out how to get her video live streamed in, but we do have her audio figured out. And we've got a picture we're going to be throwing up. So there's that too. Want to start off with some good news, and this is why I say it's a bit of a, a bit of a hard switch. But there were a couple of good things that happened in the province of Alberta. Perhaps one of the biggest ones that kind of slipped through the cracks was the fact that there's been some pretty significant changes to terminology that are used in Alberta courtrooms. So the title change was announced. Uh, by the Honorable Mary T. Moreau, who is the Chief Justice. Um, and she announced that they were making a change of title from master in chambers to refer to judges to applications judge for applications judges, which makes a whole lot of sense for a whole lot of reasons because master in chambers carries some pretty heavy connotations with it. And the, the, Honorable Mary Moreau was very clear that these changes were being made because of uh, inclusion, equality, and diversity. So it's a pretty remarkable thing that this happened at the same time as we have Tyler Shandro picking fights in all of the big ways with all of the legal people. So we also saw that uh, criminal defense lawyers walked out this week in regards to a lack of financial support for legal aid. So for those of you who are not aware, legal aid provides legal services to people who otherwise don't have the, the big money to spend on lawyers. Now, legal aid in Alberta works a little bit differently than most people are aware of, because when most people think of legal aid, they think of the American model, where somebody goes to work for legal aid and that's their job. That's not what happens in Alberta. In Alberta, practicing lawyers take time and they say, you know what, I'll do this amount of hours for legal aid. And they get paid, not a whole heck of a lot, for doing that work. Well, the problem is that they're not getting paid a whole heck of a lot. And secondary to that, there aren't nearly enough people who are able to provide this service. And this is putting the legal aid lawyers under significant stress. It's also making it more difficult for people to access legal aid in a timely manner. And so this week, we saw a boatload of lawyers across the province walk out of the, the courtrooms to draw attention to the fact that there are huge funding issues within the legal aid universe. We moved pretty quickly from the good news of the title change. Moving on from there. And this is, this is my personal favorite of the, the night. And I say this because... Um, I, I, I have very close source of information on this one. The ex-minister of infrastructure, Prasad Panda, was out door knocking in his constituency in Calgary this week. And he was handing out flyers 
Now, these flyers were very, very clearly targeted more towards his Minister of Infrastructure days. And in particular, there was one heading on the flyer that caught at least one person's attention. And that one person said, hey, so you're, you're bragging about investing $1.5 in the Keystone XL pipeline. Didn't that kind of turn out to be a bit of a disaster? Now, normally I don't do anecdotal sort of stories of sort of, well, this is what happened. But in this particular situation, I will, because it was actually my dad who got handed this flyer. And my dad asked Prasad Panda, hey, so, you know, Keystone XL didn't turn out too well for you guys. Why are you handing out these flyers? And Prasad Panda's response was, effectively, well, I had a bunch in the office that I needed to get rid of. Which is a, a, a fascinating campaign strategy, or campaign strategy, to say the very least. Other things that happened this week: it was back to school, and Adriana Lagrange came out in classic Adriana Lagrange fashion with some uh, some tweets, some commentary that was not particularly well received. Uh, the, the tweet that she put out on the, the first day of, on September 1st was it's disappointing to see some individuals within the education system and the public playing politics on what for many is the first day back to school. School authorities are extremely well funded. It's probably easier for her to say that given that it was her ministry and her government that removed the ability to track uh, class sizes but the reality is, is teachers are not particularly well-funded. Class sizes are continuing to grow. And especially with the heat that we've seen across the province in the last couple of weeks with kids going back to school, ventilation was a problem. And there were a lot of teachers who responded to that tweet. This one, though, is the absolute favorite. It's simply titled, Teaching in Alberta. It's a DeWalt fan blowing air over a bucket of ice to try to cool the classroom down. This is the reality of teaching in Alberta. Growing class sizes, lack of supports are the reality of teaching in Alberta. And yet Adrienne Grange felt it was perfectly appropriate to say that teachers are extremely well funded. She doubled down on that, though, in a kind of a strange way, because she gave Tavis Taves what many saw was the kiss of death because she endorsed him. She put out an email uh, ostensibly sent through the Travis Taves campaign where she said, Travis Taves, he's the best guy. I've always known he's the best guy. Excuse me. He's the guy for the job. And there's a lot of people who saw that and went, is that really the endorsement that you want, Travis? Is that is that is, is that the person that you wanted to say, hey, you know what? She digs me. Everybody else should. Happened. Nonetheless. Getting into the fun stuff, though, September 1st wasn't just the first day back to school. It was also Alberta Day. Now, Alberta Day is celebrated on the day that, according to some, Alberta joined Confederation. And in particular, there was a, a minister who had some thoughts about Alberta Day that, that we're going to share with you right now. And yes, why should we celebrate? You know, it baffles me a little bit that we've been 117 years as a province, and just now are we officially recognizing and celebrating the birth of this incredible and great province, this most wonderful place in the world to live. We need to celebrate the birthday 
of this province. And that's what we've begun today. I think it's so appropriate that we do it with our Indigenous people. And let me speak frankly for a few moments. There are, there are many in our country, in our province, who are frustrated. Um, maybe the reason the Fair Deal panel was even struck in the first place, uh, that Alberta has never really been granted that full fair deal. Thank you so much. Um, never really been granted that full fair deal uh, with the federal government that was promised. Uh, the family, family compact of a Laurentian elites uh, have always skewed the deal in their favor. And so from the start, as the Premier has said, we faced adversity, uh, even within Confederation. I find it interesting that Alberta was late joining Confederation. From 1867 till 1905, until Alberta joined as a province, um, Newfoundland and Labrador was even after that, and maybe some new provinces in the north eventually. Um, he was incensed that up until the government had officially uh, said that there was going to be an Alberta Day on September 1st, it, had, it hadn't been recognized before then, except... It kind of had. Not only has Jason Kenney tweeted out the last couple of years, but then um, the minister who had Ron Orr's job before he did, Leela here, had actually tweeted out in 2020, throughout our 115-year history, Albertans have always been generous, disciplined, and creative. It is an honor to declare September 1st as Alberta Day to celebrate our contributions to Confederation and to celebrate what it means to be Albertan. So... In 2020, Leela Ahir declared the uh, Alberta 1st, or so sorry, September 1st to be Alberta Day, but Ronner felt that it hadn't been acknowledged previously, which is some revisionist history. But secondary from there, uh, one of the other things that happened with Mr. Orr is he complained about the fact that despite the fact that Canada as Confederation was formed in 1867. Alberta wasn't, as he put it, allowed in until 1905. And that's arguably true, except it's not. The reality is, Alberta wasn't a thing before 1905. It was part of the Northwest Territories. It was only in 1905 that the Prime Minister said, you know what, maybe, okay, these folks want some provinces, maybe we should make some provinces over there, and created the province of Alberta in 1905. Fun little anecdote, one of the other things that happened with that was, uh, it, was a, it was a liberal uh, who was the very first premier of Alberta. Uh, so, Ron Orr, crushing it almost as hard as we're crushing it with the audio tonight. Um, moving on from there, though, we got to hear about a budget surplus this week. So Mr. Kenny announced a big budget surplus. Originally, the uh, original projections were that it was going to be in the neighborhood of about a $500 million budget surplus. Um, but what happened with the actual budget surplus, largely because of the huge increase in prices of oil and gas, was there was a $13.2 billion surplus. Now, where that surplus comes from was very brilliantly explained by Trevor Toome. Trevor Toome is an economist. He's been on the show before talking about equalization. 
Uh, and Mr. Toom, he raised the question uh, and he addressed the situation when it came to where the budget came from. And he did a great little graph where you can see quite visually where the vast majority of the, the surplus came from. So there's a $28 billion revenue boost that came to the provincial government and the provincial coffers because of natural resources breaks down from there and you can see on the the graph if you're watching on the youtubes uh you can see that it, it all flows through trevor dr two makes amazing graphs um but you can see the the flow through of the the revenue to where it was spent now mr kenny did make some announcements in regards to where he was going to be uh putting some of that money and the place where he decided to put that money primarily was actually towards some savings. So he put a he put a boatload of money towards savings. He did a great big thing about how we were going to be putting 2.9 billion dollars into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, which is great, but it also has some pretty major problems. One of the biggest problems is as we've talked about on recent episodes, there are huge issues for people who rely on funding from the government in order to make ends meet. One of the biggest examples of this has to do with folks who are on programs like AISH. So as we talked about in a couple of episodes ago, people who are relying on AISH for their income, AISH for anybody who's new to the term is assisted income for the severely handicapped, people who are relying on AISH are relying on AISH at an amount that actually puts them below the poverty line. That's the reality. It was the UCP that actually de-indexed AISH. At the very, very end of the NDP's tenure, they stepped forward and they said, you know what, the, the way that we've been increasing AISH from time to time hasn't been great. We need to do a much better job of how we're doing that. So we're going to just index it to H, and every year we're going to take a look at how bad inflation was, whether or not inflation went up or down, and we're going to say, hey, we need to, we need to move H up a little bit maybe. Now, when the UCP came in, they not only said, no, we're not going to index H, they actually removed the ability for, uh, sorry, they changed the payment date so that the, the payment date that people on H had gotten used to was no longer available to them. It would have been unbelievably easy for the UCP to have said, you know what? People on H, they're hurting. We have this 13 and change billion dollar surplus. There's no reason why we can't maybe help them out a little bit. Maybe, maybe, we, can, maybe we can fix some things. Maybe we can re-index it. And it would have been a really easy move because pretty much every UCP leadership candidate has said hey, we got a problem here with H, we should probably do something about it. But they didn't. Instead, they took a victory lap where they bragged about the fact that once again, Alberta got lucky with oil and gas revenues and they didn't do anything for people on H, which is really, really unfortunate. Moving on from there. Oh, before we do, there's a lot of people who asked, how much would it take potentially to increase age? How much money are we talking about? Well, friend of the show, 
And uh, accountant, Sarah Biggs, actually did some, some math. And she tweeted out a couple of days ago to bring H to $2,000 a month, which would be a $315 increase, which would make a huge difference for a lot of people on that program. It would cost roughly $265 million a year. We could have cut back the amount that we put into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. We could have still put in $2.65 billion into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. And we could have funded H to $2,000 a month, but we didn't do that. Despite the fact, like I said, multiple UCP candidates, uh, leadership candidates, have said that would be one of the very first things they did. Moving on from there. Fingers crossed I have solved the problem, and we should have some audio playing for you in just a second here from the UCP debate. The first clip that we want to play for you comes from a... uh, an exchange where they were talking about education and they were talking about how to fund education. And one of the things that came up in that conversation was uh, Travis Taylor was saying, hey, you know what? We kept education funding stable. And there's there's a little bit, it's kind of hard to hear, but it's worth the listening to at the very end of this. I do. We held education funding flat for three years, but we honored our commitment and we didn't cut education funding. That's an ATA fallacy. So what that was, was Travis Taves saying, uh, hey, you know what, Uh, we kept education stable. And in the very background, you can hear Leela here saying that is a cut. And the reason why Leela here says that is quite simply because the reality is that it, it is a cut. When you have growing class sizes, when you have growing expenses, we've seen the Mr. Kenny and the UCP talking at length, and it's certainly been a talking point for a lot of the leadership candidates, talking at length about the fact the cost of living, the cost of everything is getting so much more expensive. They're not wrong. But when you keep education funding flat and everything is getting more expensive and there's more students and you need to replace the technology... When all of that is going on, it is a cut. And so it's perfectly appropriate that Leela Ahir shouted out, that is a cut. But it got to be even more fun than that. Because as we went through the, the evening, as we went through the, the debate, Mr. Taves chose to debate Leela Ahir on a question that had to do with the uh, arts and entertainment and culture. So, what you're going to hear here is the exchange between Leela here and Travis Taves when it comes to the arts and culture. Arts and heritage and cultural industries, recreation and sports contribute. Just so you know, the culture industry is part of a strong economy. It's not as a result of one. It's actually part of the entire, entire economy. $6.1 billion in our economy and creates more than 65,000 jobs a year. And And not only are we seeing that homegrown talent here, and I wanted to talk a little bit, just for a few seconds, about the film film tax credit. I remember, and, you know, Mr. Taves, you can probably talk about this a little bit, when we first came to you to talk about that tax credit, and that tax credit was turned away because they didn't believe in a tax credit. They didn't believe that for every dollar that we put into the film industry that five would be created. I'm really glad that the tone has changed and that that came around, but boy oh boy, was it ever hard to convince a conservative finance minister to invest in film. 
You know, I, I won't apologize for having to see the value proposition on uh, a film and television tax credit because I believe handling Albertans' taxpayer dollars needs to be done very responsibly and carefully. But there was a value proposition, and when that was adequately demonstrated, we went forth and approved the funding in the budget, and it proved to be the right decision. Alberta, it is now a billion-dollar industry, and we did show them our work. We did prove that this was possible. We did bring that forward. I'm Lena? very grateful that we actually had the ability to find this Lena? and for it. But having right, said that, how Lena. many billions of dollars did we miss Lena. out on Lena. by Lena. not jumping in at the Wait, very end? With all, all, all due respect, your first business proposition, the valuation you provided did not cut it. And that's why it's simply see the wasn't that's exactly what we saw when we brought in the value proposition the first time. When you're talking about a competitive environment, particularly for the film industry, they actually come to you with their value proposition, what they're looking for. They're just looking for an even, even playing field that is not only here, but across the United States. Talk to any Bollywood film organizer that wants to come to Alberta. They all want to come here because of our beautiful beautiful areas that they're able to do all of this. And it's billions of dollars that are possible to be able to come in. But we weren't willing to look past that until the, it, I'm not really sure what there, shifted. There are, um, originally, I, the I'm minister had brought seconds. in sure. a cap. Right. There, 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 there are lots of people There are lots of people who will come to Alberta if you pay them to come. What we need come? is a valid business Isn't that proposition what we did with oil before and we gas? make a decision. Full stop. <laughs> I'm sure the sector will be happy to hear right. that the minister that paid them the to question. come. All right, all right, all right. Yeah. Oh, it's like we've all learned how to debate, hey? <laughs> Daniel Smith, coming out of the UCP debates, had a lot uh, of, of drama on the high seas this week. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So to start with, one of the things that got Daniel Smith quite a bit of attention was she talked about how... One of the questions that came up and has come up at several debates is what would you do in order to uh, demonstrate your commitment to Albertans? And she put up a tweet thread where she said, I won't speak for other candidates, but when the provincial and federal governments imposed vaccine passports and mandates, locked down schools and businesses, and watched while pastors and youth hockey players were arrested, this is what I was doing about it. Speaking out against lockdowns on radio, which is true. Challenging Premier Kenny, which is true. Losing a radio job for refusing to parrot the media line. Now, that's where it gets a little bit interesting. When you think about losing something, that's generally something that happens out of your control. If you put down your car keys, you put down your car keys. If your car keys fall out of your pocket and you lost it, then you lost it. Somebody takes your car keys. You lost your car keys. There's a big difference between losing something and deliberately choosing to do something. And that tweet thread strongly contradicted Danielle Smith's statements that she released at the time when she left her job with her radio show because she said, I took a walk in the snow and I decided it's time to go. I'll be leaving the radio stations and chorus next month. This is my decision. I know many of you will be disappointed, so I'll try my best to explain why. So on one hand, we have Danielle Smith, who's presenting the entire situation when it's expedient as if it was out of her control. She lost her job, like so many Albertans lost their job. No, she chose to walk away from her job because she was being told that you can't tweet things about hydroxychloroquine that aren't true. You can't make up medicine 
during the middle of a pandemic. But that was just the start of Smith's week. She had a bunch of other stuff that she did. One of the other things that she promised this week was that she would make it so that post-secondary institutions could not institute really any kind of health protections if there was a resurgence of COVID or if there was some other sort of pathogen that was causing all kinds of problems. She went so far as to say she would make it illegal for schools to mandate any kind of vaccination status. She said she would make it illegal for schools to shut down and to ever do remote learning. And she said she would make it illegal for schools to do any kind of masking. Well, as with so many of Danielle Smith's other policies, it really seems like she didn't exactly think that one through. Because one of the other things that immediately came to mind for me is what if that person's working in healthcare? Most healthcare workers know there's a list of vaccines that you need to get, not only in order to enter many programs, but in order to do practicums, which is where you go out and you do the actual medicine on actual people. Those are requirements. And in order to get into those practicum sites, you often have to follow the requirements of whatever that site is, with many healthcare sites requiring vaccination as well. But even farther from there, for people who work in healthcare settings, PPE or masks isn't new. It's something that has been required for a very, very long time. Well, if you're going to learn those skills, you got to wear the masks. And if you're going to get through the program, then you have to do the program in such a way that you get practice wearing the masks. Lots of programs test students on their ability to put PPE on or don PPE and take it off properly. Because if you don't do it properly, you put yourself at risk, you put your patients at risk, you put your family at risk. But apparently that is something that Daniel Smith didn't really think of. Because she's just going to make these blanket rules, as she does with just about everything, and kind of just hope for the best. And that's sort of the theme with her campaign. We've seen it in no greater place than the Alberta Sovereignty Act. Now, on September 1st, Mr. Canney held that press conference with Ron Orr, where they talked about all the wonderful things that they were going to do for Alberta during Alberta Day. It was a big function celebrating Alberta's birthday. Involved the crown. So the lieutenant governor was there. She was in attendance for part of that ceremony. And at the end of that ceremony, she did a press conference where a bunch of reporters asked her a bunch of questions. One of those questions had to do with, so this Alberta Sovereignty Act, what would you do with that? And she gave, when you actually read the answer, a fairly responsible answer. She said, well, I would have to check with the legality of the situation and kind of go from there. I can't make any guarantees. And that's basically what the legality of her role is. It's important to remember that we still exist as a constitutional monarchy. And as much as political parties make the laws, at the end of the day, in order for a law to be get, become a law, the lieutenant governor has to say, yeah, okay, that's a law now. That's the power that she has. Now, historically, the lieutenant governor has only, on extremely rare occasions, said something like, 
whoa, this is a bridge too far. And typically, it is only reserved for situations where the law that's being passed by the legislative body would be profoundly unconstitutional. And that's perfectly reasonable. It's good to have those sorts of safeguards in place. It's also good to know that the lieutenant governor wouldn't just pass every law without having some sort of legal consultation with experts, as one would argue the legislature should be doing. And certainly any act like the Alberta Sovereignty Act should be filtered through. But because she said that she would do what is required of her, because she said that she would do her job, Danielle Smith lit her hair on fire. And she released a statement that included not only a whole bunch of stuff that simply wasn't true, but also a whole bunch of speculation. She requested that the lieutenant governor walk back her comments and fulfill her role appropriately. She also then doubled down on the fact nobody knows what the Alberta Sovereignty Act is or what it says because she hasn't written it yet, but she swears that it's going to be written in such a way that it will be constitutionally okay. Danielle Smith continues to flip back and forth between this idea of we're sending Ottawa a strong message and we're going to say that they're never ever going to be able to take away our rights and freedoms and if they pass a law that we don't like, we're going to say no. We're going to say that they couldn't have arrested Tamara Litch. We're going to say that they couldn't have put in any sort of travel mandates. We're going to use, that's what the Alberta Sovereignty Act is for. The Alberta Sovereignty Act is to say no to Ottawa. But at the same time, as soon as she gets in any trouble for it, she immediately turns around and says, oh, guys, I haven't written it yet. I actually know what it's going to say yet, but it'll be good, I promise. And this is a foundational campaign plank for her. And in fact, it even got worse in the last 48 hours because the Western Standard decided that they were going to release a story where they said, oh, you know what, Kenny, he was with the lieutenant governor on the day that she made the comment that she would make sure that every law that she signs into being would be legally valid and constitutionally valid. That's the story that the Western Standard ran on September 1st, on Alberta Day. It's no surprise that Kenny was seen with the lieutenant governor at an official government function. But here we have Daniel Smith coming out and saying, the list, this latest article is extremely alarming. Any coordination by Jason Kenny with Justin Trudeau's appointed lieutenant governor would be a serious violation of our democratic processes. And she's not wrong. But... Here's where taking a look at what Danielle Smith says and how she says it gets to be so important. We've had three years of practice with this, folks. We have seen Jason Kenney carefully position his words in such a way that he can get away with the maximum amount. Well, Danielle Smith does that, but it's on steroids. So what she says is the latest article is extremely alarming. Okay, that's an entirely subjective statement. Then she says, any coordination by Jason Kenney with Justin Trudeau's appointed lieutenant governor would be a serious violation of our democratic processes. And she's not wrong. It would be. But she's not saying that it happened. She's just implying it strong enough to her audience and her followers and her base that they'll be able to read that and go, ah, 
Kenny's coordinating with the lieutenant governor. This is terrible. This is not responsible communications. It's certainly not responsible for somebody who is trying to seek the office of the premier. She's deliberately placing her words in such a way that they are the most misinterpretable, if that's a word, without actually coming out and saying the thing that she's trying to imply. And I would bet dollars to donuts if anybody said, Danielle, why did you say that Jason Kenney was coordinating with the lieutenant governor to try to stop your Alberta Sovereignty Act? Why did you say that? The next words out of her mouth would be, oh, but I didn't. I didn't say that. What I said was, it would be really, really bad if he, if he did. It's this sort of disingenuous communication that allows people to jump to ridiculous conclusions that is directly responsible for the kinds of situations we see like the deputy premier being accosted. This is a real problem that we have to figure out how we're going to handle. And I would just remind everybody once again that this is a real problem that's coming from the person who by many reports is the front runner in the UCP race. Moving on from there, let's talk about COVID for a sec. Since Daniel Smith has so many rules and stuffs about COVID, let's talk about COVID. There is an amazing reporter who has been doing some amazing work on putting together all kinds of graphs and information about what's been going on with COVID, not just currently, but over the last several years. And we wanted to take a a sec to share a couple of those. The reporter is from CTV News Edmonton. Her name is Kira Markov. I apologize if I'm not getting the why right. Um, But she releases a series of graphs every once in a while where she says, okay, this is where we're at with COVID numbers. And there's some numbers that we really should be paying attention to. When you take a look at the number of deaths per month in Alberta, And you compare them 2020, 2021, 2022. We are up month over month over all of the years. In February, we had almost 200 more deaths than we did in the preceding year. In March, 60. In April, over 100. In May, almost 100 again. Now, fortunately, the deaths have dropped back down, but the reality is more people are dying from COVID in 2022 than they have in any other year during the pandemic. And we see the same thing, by and large, with hospitalizations. When you take a look at the hospitalizations, they are, for most months, double, if not more, what they were in 2021 and miles above what they were in 2020. The only good section that has any sort of good news is the ICU. The ICU admissions are actually down, and that's largely attributable to the fact that so many more people have the vaccines, they're having so many fewer outcomes. But we're walking through COVID right now like we think it's no big deal. We're walking through COVID like it's over. And the reality is, more people are dying than ever have before, year over year. More people are being admitted to hospital year over year. We're not done with COVID. COVID's not done with us. We just don't seem to be paying attention to it anymore. Moving on from there. Just a couple more, and then we're going to go to uh, Deirdre 
for the rest of the the show and we're going to do the the Twitter spaces and we'll probably be leaning heavily into the Twitter spaces because we've had so many audio problems tonight. Um, But moving on from there, when we're talking about major issues in Alberta, one of the other big issues that has been coming up again and again and again has to do with the opioid crisis. We are seeing huge numbers still of people who are overdosing. And one of the big problems that has been identified is the fact that the UCP government has taken an extremely non-evidence-based approach to managing opioid addiction and opioid overdoses. They've closed supervised consumption sites. They've moved supervised consumption sites to make them inaccessible. In Calgary, there was supposed to be a a portable supervised consumption site bus that was going to be available, particularly in the the east side of Calgary. Um, That was shut down. And it was shut down in part under the promise that, you know what we're going to do? It's okay, guys. We hear that you're worried that we're, we're, we're making some of these services less accessible. We understand that. But you know what? It's going to be okay. Because we're going to open many supervised consumption sites at homeless shelters. We're going to make sure that it's right there for the homeless shelters, the, the houseless population. They're going to be able to access those, those supervised consumption sites. It's going, to, it's going to be fantastic. We're going to have the best supervised consumption sites. They're going to be available. It's going to be great. Up until this week when UCP uh, Deputy Minister of uh, Addiction and Mental Health came out and said, just kidding. Uh, we've been talking with some of the folks at the drop-in, and they're not super keen with the idea of having a supervised consumption site there. So we're not going to do it. Um, we'll, fig- we'll figure something out, though, down the road. We'll figure something out. And the language is particularly telling. The last paragraph of the, the section that we have on the screen right now, Alberta's government will continue to work with the city of Calgary, local residents, business owners, and community stakeholders to establish a more suitable overdose prevention model within Calgary than what currently exists. Now, worth noting there... It doesn't say we're going to work to find a location for a supervised consumption site. It doesn't say that. What it says is we're going to find a better model. So there's no guarantee that there's going to be any sort of uh, additional supervised consumption sites added anywhere. And it's a bit of a bait and switch. Our last story is a little bit of a... Uh, a thing that we're talking about because we've got some, we've got, oh, we've got a corker of an episode coming up this week. We talked a little while ago about the amazing episode that Deirdre uh, and Kathleen Smith did uh, with Women of Baby Polly, where they talked to Dr. Angela Grace uh, about her experiences with potentially running as a candidate for the NDP in the next provincial election. Well, we wanted to spend a bit more time with it. So so we sat down with Dr. Grace for about an hour-long conversation. And it's, uh, it's a spicy one. Uh, there's, there's some things that are said that are going to be quite surprising to people. But there's some things that will be said that are not that surprising to people because there have been a lot of concerns raised with the NDP lately about how they've been treating people in regards to how they've been treating particularly nomination contestants. Now, we've done a couple of stories on this, and we kind of peaked with a conversation with two ex-NDP MLAs, one of whom, uh, the Honorable Stephanie McLean, is an ex-justice minister and an ex-associate uh, whip for the government. Um, we also spoke to a couple people who had seen firsthand how the internal politics of the NDP could at times get, from what they said, extremely toxic. 
Well, the NDP announced finally, you know what? It's cool, guys. We're going to do an investigation into this. Uh, we're provided a copy of one of the emails that they sent out to people where they said, hey, if you're an NDP member and you want to talk about your bad experiences or the, the concerns that you have, please let us know. And we'll make sure that somebody from this law firm, uh, Southern Butler Price, will we'll speak to you because they're going to do the independent investigation. Now, right out of the bat, there's a bit of a problem there because they only sent that email to current NDP members. And a lot of people who experienced or who say that they've experienced the, the toxicity have left the party. So right out of the gates, the NDP seems to be stacking the deck in such a way that they're not going to be talking to the people who ex- actually experienced some of the worst things which is a weird take, but it gets even weirder because when you get into, (coughs) excuse me, when you get into who's involved in that law firm, one of the senior partners of the law firm is a lady named Jessica Bowering. She's a partner, barrister, and solicitor. That name might sound familiar to some people who have been paying attention to politics since 2015, because one of the things that happened in 2015 was the B.C., uh, sorry, a lot of people from BC who were BC NDPers came to Alberta to fulfill roles. And in particular, Jessica Bowering came to Alberta and she acted as the chief of staff to the Minister of Justice and Solicitor General. So this is somebody, the law firm that the NDP hired to do their investigation has a partner that was previously a chief of staff in the NDP government. Now, we have to say that the two lawyers that are tasked with doing the investigation don't appear to have been high-ranking members of the NDP government in the past. So there's obviously a little bit of separation there. But it's really not the greatest optics when, of all of the law firms that the NDP could have chosen to do a robust investigation of the accusations that have been levied towards them in regards to how they're treating candidates, how they're disqualifying candidates, when there's no constitutional mechanism for them to do so. Maybe you could go with a law firm that wasn't, didn't have one of your besties as a partner. Just spitballing. That episode with Dr. Grace is going to be coming out on uh, Thursday. It'll be going up on Patreon early for our Patreon sponsors. And this is where I'm going to do my mid-show Patreon plug. Um, For our Patreon sponsors, they get early access. uh, And it's because we have two uh, FOIP requests that we're still waiting to hear from. Um, And it's because of the support that we get from our Patreon supporters that we're able to pay for those things and apparently also pay for the audio that on some days decides not to to work. We've got Deirdre Mitchell-McLean, who is going to be, she's, she's got a, a, a national, let's go with story, uh, that is, is going to be significantly important. Um, so Deirdre, how are you doing tonight? How, how's your week been? How are you doing? My week has been, uh, well, my week was exhausting, actually. It was absolutely exhausting. I missed, I missed the most of the date. <laughs> Because I was asleep. <laughs> you know, uh, I should spend some time off this summer, but the leadership rate really, I was talking to someone not too long ago, and I realized that uh, I, didn't, I didn't take time off over the summer like, like people normally would, because there, there was a lot of stuff going on. So school's back in, and uh, yeah. 
Here, Here we, we are. are. <laughs> so you kind of you kind of sent me uh, a little bit of a, a heads up on what your your federal story of the the week was. Yeah, and I I hate to tell that uh, this information. Unfortunately, we are actually two weeks old by now. So um, if if you would like to write down uh, this website, I won't give it to you right this second. But that's your you know five minute warning that. I will be giving it a website. Um, so as most everyone knows, the public inquiry for the public emergency commission that is looking into uh, the use of the Emergencies Act and what led to it and whether or not it was necessary and things like that. Um, they put out a call, it would be two weeks ago now, looking for... Um, the public, and this this doesn't just include people who were involved in protests or the um, like the blockades or anything. It's open to people who weren't affected, I guess, directly by these things, but maybe watched it from other places in Canada, like some of us did. <laughs> so, um, I I highly recommend. I am I am definitely going to respond because. I mean, you know, February 2022 was a pretty wild time for, I think, for all of us, watching this all take place in Ottawa. And it wasn't just had the Coots blockades here in Alberta, uh, the Coots border blockade. And so the opportunity, I think, to let the commission know kind of what you felt watching that, um, you know, and of course the longer it went on, I think, well, probably the stronger people's feeling became about the entire thing. But they are looking for, like I said, uh, the public to share their views. And the way that they've actually written it, I will read it directly. The committee welcomes contributions from all members of the public on their experiences, views, observations, and ideas in order to carry out its mandate and fully appreciate how these matters affected Canadians. So, as I said, for me, just paying attention to it. No, I wasn't involved. No, the measures didn't affect me. But also, it does have a list of questions. So, which questions apply to you? Um, you know, what impact, if any, did the Emergencies Act um, or the occupation or the blockades have on you? How did you feel as a result? Uh, question two, you're welcome to tell the commission about your views on the Emergencies Act, whether it was appropriate or effective. So, again, I think you can see where I'm going here, where if you if you supported this, um, and obviously, if you didn't, I'm sure that I'm sure that has already circulated well amongst that group. But <laughs> maybe if you have some other thoughts to add, uh, this would be the time to do it. So hopefully you've got your writing utensil. Uh, it's the Public Order Emergency Commission .ca, and that's forward slash share hyphen your hyphen views forward slash. So again, this public order emergency commission.ca forward slash share hyphen your hyphen views forward slash. 
So yeah, that's my that's my big thing. And they are looking for, uh, as I said, this is unfortunately two weeks old. When I found the article, it was a week old, <laughs> but I hadn't heard of it and it seemed important. Uh, they are looking for submissions to be received by early September in order to be included when the hearings uh, start up again on September the 19th. However, um, they will accept submissions from the public until October the 31st. So as quick as you can, there's a little bit of a time limit on that one. I think that's, that's a really important thing to highlight in particular because, you know, one of the things that we've seen, especially in Alberta, is that the 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 people who were supportive of the convoy and the, the blockades are extremely organized. Uh, they have really, really strong social media networks where they they are able to to share all of this stuff and say, hey, make all of your 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 grievances public. Um, but it's not something that the average person is necessarily fairly well well engaged with. Um, so that's probably a really important thing for people to 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 take the time to do. If if you're done with that piece. I am. Yeah, that was that was the big thing. Okay. What were your sort of takeaways for the for the big things of the week? So, that was also kind of a fun week, right? <laughs> with with um with the sovereignty act and stuff. Now, um I don't know if anyone else is getting candid emails. Um I am. I don't always open them because I'm getting like five a day. And uh one that came in from Brian Jean I think Friday, said that uh, Smith was going to release some text of the Alberta Sovereignty Act so that people could see it before they vote. Now, he's the only one that I'm seeing saying this. I don't see anything from Smith, <laughs> and I don't see any other media uh, covering that. But, you know, I think you... I think you captured it perfectly well when you said, you know, which which sovereignty act are you talking about? Are you talking about something that's actually going to be constitutional? Or are you talking about the one that is going to allow you to do all of these things that's essentially not something the provincial government can do? Well, this is where I get so I, I, I get I'll say confused because she did. I, I suspect what Mr. Jean is referring to. And it was I, I, I did see that email as well. And I got a little giggle out of it because it, it almost seemed like he was trying to say, hey, Danielle, thanks for listening to my suggestion, which I don't <laughs> think was the was the case at all. Um, but in her her big statement where she said, oh, that friggin' lieutenant governor, uh, she did say that she would be releasing uh, some particulars of the Sovereignty Act, including the mechanics. And she put a heavy emphasis on the, the mechanics side. Um, and and that's sort of where it was. Now, this is, again, it's one of those things, well, well what are we talking about here? Because on one hand, she's saying, oh, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some of the cards, guys. It's cool, I promise, I swear. But on the other hand, her whole justification up until this point on the more... Whoa, soft approach to the Sovereignty Act, I guess, has been it's going to be written in conjunction with caucus. It's going to be written in conjunction with constitutional lawyers. We're going to make sure this thing is bulletproof. So, like, again, it's 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 that, you know, like I said, which Sovereignty Act are we talking about? Are we talking about the one that you're going to write with caucus under the advice of constitutional lawyers? Or are we talking about the one that that maybe some some law firms wrote for you? already well and that's which, I think that's where a lot of 
the confusion has come from because if you look at, so the three authors of the Free Alberta Strategy, the ones who actually have recommended the Alberta Sovereignty Act, uh, whatever text Daniel Smith has seen and basically agreed to, I guess, is what happened. Um, but the the three authors, so you've got Dr. Barry Cooper of the Faculty of Political Science at the University of Calgary, and he was, uh, he wrote an article for, I believe, the National Post, and he's the one who said it, that it that it is unconstitutional and it's unconstitutional on purpose, right? Yeah. So we have that author. Um, you know, Derek Frum is a constitutional lawyer. He is, he wrote an opinion piece that appeared in the Edmonton Journal and Calgary Herald, so National Post, um, a couple of days ago. And his, you know, I've, I've heard, like I said, I've heard this stuff before. I've heard it from the separatist crowd. This is, it's, it's identical. This is something that they all really believe. And one of the things I got out of Frum's uh, opinion piece was when he was talking about, you know, how from, from the time of William Aberhart and up to Preston Manning. And I, as I was looking into all of this, cause I had to get more information. Yeah. Well, okay. So what exactly was Bill Aberhart or yeah. Bible bill. What was he, what was he really doing that, that has people so excited about this idea of, of, uh, more separation of, of powers. And, you know, it, the, the man was like, he, he started his own Bible school and it, one of the first people in and the first graduate from that Bible school was Ernest Manning, Preston's father. So Ernest Manning became a protege of William Aberhart and Preston Manning came up So to me, this is just the oral history of Western alienation that came from like one person. And William Aberhart, he's the first, he's the first, uh, his first, his government was the first to actually put in recall legislation. And his constituents got the signatures <laughs> to have him recalled. And his government, rather than actually allow this to happen, retroactively repealed the law <laughs> so they couldn't do it and yeah so bible, I mean, bible bill had some some eccentricities <laughs> let's say he did and and i mean like i said this is all just it's so circular um the a lot of this this sentiment um and the thing is like while i could agree i i went pretty deep and before Aberhart was elected, because he was elected in 1935, right? And so what was going on? Well, there was, there was a Great Depression in 1935, especially in the Western provinces. How did we get the nickname the Dust Bowl? Because there were crops in Saskatchewan that didn't grow for nine years. There was a huge uh, problem for the Western provinces during that time. And a lot of it actually came out of uh, the way that the the division of powers and what what each what each area was responsible for. So municipalities at the time were responsible for uh, unemployment benefits. It between that and farms that were basically could not 
they couldn't make their uh, their payments to creditors. The provinces were on the four Western provinces were on the brink of insolvency. The federal government had to step in. And this was before, like I said, before Aberhart was elected. But the feds stepped in and helped everything out, made it so that the provinces didn't go under. And it was a bad time for the country itself, just in general. I think it was a bad time for all of the governments. But, you know, Canada was having a a pretty sticky time and yet still, you know, came in. Uh, Saskatchewan was uh, declared too big to fail. (laughs) Saskatchewan was declared too big to fail. (laughs) And yeah, so there's, there's quite a bit of history there. And I'm honestly, every time I dig into it, I kind of wonder, so how is it again that we're so alienated because Ottawa treats us so badly? Every time I look into it, I find that I, I can't, I actually come away going, well, that was a good thing, wasn't it? Not letting the Western provinces become insolvent. That seems like a good thing at the time (laughs) i'm not sure i'm not sure maybe it wasn't but it's It's funny that you 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 talk about how uh interconnected all of these things are because and and i i know that we've talked about this before on the show but it's just such a it's 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 what got us blocked by daniel smith so i love talking about it (laughs) um when we're talking about two of the authors of that whole strategy we're talking about two lawyers who have a law firm in airdrie i believe it is and uh that's the same law firm that danielle smith i don't know contracted is the right word or not to uh launch her lawsuits against the government's um in regards to vaccine choice because there was a period where johnson and johnson wasn't available in canada and so she wanted to sue everybody i guess in order to make sure that that all albertans had all of the vaccines to choose from now nothing ever came of that lawsuit because we ended up bringing johnson and johnson in yeah. Um, but the, the fun thing about that whole story for me is she raised over $100,000 and she has never provided any kind of accounting for where that money went other than to say, well, there was $30,000 in a retainer account that we gave to the lawyers and uh, that all got donated to the the JCCF because, of course, it did the Justice oh. Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Um but the other $71,000 and change, I think it is, she's never said where that money went. It just went away, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and it's, 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 it's wildly entertaining to me that the, the law firm that she used to launch this lawsuit that never happened and raise all of this money on GoFundMe is the same law firm that wrote her Free Alberta Strategy and allegedly the the mechanics i'll say for the alberta sovereignty act um don't ask her about that on twitter you'll get blocked (laughs) yeah are you blocked by smith yet i'm not actually smith follows me so that happened quite a while ago 
and but I, I I tend to subtweet more than usually ever respond to or quote tweet a politician. I just subtweet. It does keep me from getting blocked. <clears throat> yeah, we just we just straight up asked her, "Hey, where'd the other seventy thousand go?" And then within I don't know five minutes, we were blocked or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, I honestly um, because we debated with women of AB Poly, do we do we try and get all of the all of the candidates in? And I said, and, and, you know, there may or may not have been a co-host of mine who was like, there's no way in hell I'm talking with Daniel Smith. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, allegedly that could have happened. And, uh, and I said, well, it doesn't really seem like, yes, I'm not going to invite everybody because it's women of AB Bali. But I'm like, I'm not going to leave out, not going to leave out one person at the same time. And then we got, uh, you know, a couple of campaigns that were like, you know, wait until after membership closes and things. And we were just like, you know what? Don't bother because this is like, I've, I've steered away from MLAs anyways, because I find that they're always on message. And it just bothers me. I don't want to talk to someone who's on message. Well, it's so. tricky when you're, t- when you're talking to folks like that, because you know, it's, it's like when you take a look at any of, of many politicians, uh, interviews or public statements. Like I, I think I go back to the interview that uh, Shandro had with, I want to say it was CBC at noon or something recently where he was talking about the provincial police force. And man, I did not envy that host because they're offering operating on such a compressed time frame where they've got like, you've got 15 <laughs> minutes. That's what you get. And then we have to do the next show. And yeah. he, opened up with this barrage of I'll call it unmitigated bullshit. Um, and he just kept going with it. And the poor host, like there were a couple of times where she was like, Hey, this thing that you're saying, it's, it's not great. Um, and, and I'm not sure if that's technically true, but he, he would embed so many falsehoods in a, in a sentence that, that trying to, where do you start? <laughs> yeah, like, well, okay, I guess that's going to take a half hour to unpack and we're not talking about anything else. Like it's yeah. it's 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 a lot of a lot of work. <laughs> and especially it, when you're operating on such a limited time frame, it's it's really difficult. It is, yeah, and like no, I've got um you know, I I read like I said I read their emails. I'm I I keep up with a lot of the a lot of the interview things, but also, you know, stuff that they do that isn't, I guess, that isn't to a public sphere so much, right? So that's where I'm attending Manning Conference things. They're they're more open. They're just more open when they're when they believe that they're just talking to their base. So that's the other reason why I spend so much time around these things is because they they do they say different things to different people and. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you take a look at the tone. Uh, Tuesday's debate. Um, you take a look at the tone that a certain three candidates, I, you know, except for, and I'll give him loose credit for this, the one candidate in the UCP leadership race who I think has at least been consistent has been Todd Lowen because he doesn't change his his rhetoric. He is that that dude is committed. But you compare the the rhetoric from Brian Jean and from Daniel Smith on Tuesday to the Alberta Prosperity Project debate. And 
it, it, two totally different beasts. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely was. And I mean, from the little bit that I caught, <laughs> I, I woke up, I woke up and went, I, there was a bunch of messages in a group chat. They were all talking about the debate. And I was like, oh my God, no, <laughs> like I've missed the debate. It started an hour and a half before I had uh, woken up. And so, yeah, so I like, I tried to watch a little bit. I didn't know what the question was. I was just like, okay, I'm too lost to do this. And the only thing that I'd gotten out of it, that little bit that I tuned in was when Sonny was going after Smith about the ASA and Smith said, or Smith argued for a rebuttal and got it and said, I'd argue we already, that we, there's already a mandate for this. So that was the only thing that I caught, but I, it stuck with me. And, you know, there was, there was some, there were some disagreements on the Twitters, uh, very similar to the ones that were happening around the LG. And it kind of depended on where you sat on the political spectrum, I found. So I also I also go back and forth between those Facebook groups um, that are full of conservatives because because they say something very, very different than what I see regularly on Twitter. But I do see the amount of accounts that are liking Daniel Smith's tweets. There's got to be someone else. There's got to be conservatives talking about conservative stuff on Twitter. Like there has to be. I don't know if they they do. I think that, that there's probably a lot of uh, politicos who are employed or who have more than one account. And I mean, we certainly have seen bot farming in Alberta um, on more than one occasion. Yeah. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised if there's some 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 bots for hire. But one of the other things that I think is is fascinating is I've sort of been watching her metrics as well i'll say and there's a lot of americans on there (laughs) there's a lot of americans on there like you take a look at and even this was what got me looking at it was i was trying to make sense of like how in the holy heck does the alberta prosperity project get the the traction that they do on facebook and they are deploying a very deliberate strategy where they're quite literally um, posting their stuff to American groups talking about freedom and, and all of the freedom things. Um, and uh, you take a look at who's liking and sharing and they're like from Missouri. Oh, that's um, helpful. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I've, I've, I mean, I, I cannot say that I've done like a, a comprehensive analysis of all of her, her her twitter stuffs but uh i have noticed that every once in a while when i when i go like oh i wonder who's liking this stuff today uh i noticed that it's very very clearly there's there's a few accounts that i don't think are going to be voting in the ucp leadership race (laughs) yeah okay so that also doesn't really surprise me um i am kind of like i i follow because i follow i follow politics right like unless you unless you're throwing in anti-vax stuff, I had to start on following those people. But, you know, if people tweet about politics, I don't really care if, if I agree with your opinion or not. Um, but I will, I tend to follow them because I'm there for the politics. And so I'm, I've actually kind of been a little surprised that when I've gone through some of Daniel tweet, Daniel's tweets, I don't follow any of those people. Like not one. And I find that a little like odd. most of their tweets in Cyrillic. 
Yeah. <laughs> Comic Sans. <laughs> yeah. It's a... Uh... I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a different group. Right. And so I think this is, this is something that, you know, the, the conservatives really got upset about the LG's comments, um, the Lieutenant governor's comments. And I actually thought Janet French's article was the fairest that I've seen. And when I'm calling it fair, because uh, Catherine Grukowski did, you know, give us what the exact quote was uh, from from the LG when they had asked about it. And I didn't think that that was a fair representation to put the whole quote in like that. Um, but when I read, so when I read Janet's, in my mind, the spirit of what she was saying, which was, okay, yeah, I don't want to speculate on, on, on a bill that, that doesn't exist yet, but, you know, here's, like, here's my role. I yeah. liked that constitutional fire extinguisher. Um, however, I do understand where some of the conservatives were coming from when they were saying, you know, convention. Like, yes, the role still allows for the uh, lieutenant governor to reserve royal assent while they figure some of this stuff out. But, I mean, look at, you know, look at uh, the turn off the taps bill. Right. Everyone knew that was going to be challenged, that it was very likely going to be unconstitutional because you can't turn off the taps to the other province. Well, that's one of the reasons why Kenny didn't didn't push forward with it right away, because. Oh, but he did. He did. He enacted or sorry, he proclaimed it on the 20. He proclaimed it on the 18th of May. Was it that fast? It was that fast. Yeah. So um, so Horgan. Horgan challenged it as soon as it received Royal Assent, and it received Royal Assent in 2018, um, also May, actually. So it was May 18th that it was passed in the ledge, and it received, or maybe it was the 12th, and then it received Royal Assent on the 18th. Now, arguably, it was unconstitutional at the time, but it received Royal Assent, and Horgan uh, challenged it almost immediately. And the judge, the justice, reserved his decision uh, in June of 2018. And nothing really happened until Kenny got in. And then he uh, proclaimed it very quickly um, on the, let's see, it was still, or wait a minute, maybe it was 2019 that the, ju- that the judgment was reserved. But one of the two. And they basically nothing happened with it because Kenny didn't actually turn off the taps. So there's a sunset clause within the turn off the taps legislation. That's right. Known as something else. But uh, so when the two years were up and it had expired, that's when it started to hit the news again. Uh, So that would be in 2021. And uh, they did rewrite it, taking out some of those things that they knew were unconstitutional. So, even if you want to go by, let's say, precedence, the LGs since 1937 have tended to approve what the legislature approves and what the legislature passes. They've given royal assent to it, and then the courts have come into play. And, I mean, that could even be because of how bad it was when, when John Bowen did that in 1937. 
right? Like, you know, the government took away his house, <laughs> they kicked him out of his house. So it was, it was pretty bad. There was a lot of bad blood uh, for 70 years, actually. It was, uh, oh, Tommy Kwong in 2008, who actually finally fixed the rift in the families and um, brought some stuff back to government house that was uh, Bowen's. But there was a lot of bad blood for a long time. So maybe just convention said, you know what, we're just going to put this and let the courts do their thing if, if it turns out that this needs to be fought in court. Convention is that the LG and Governor General don't, that they, that they pass this stuff believing that uh, the Legislative Assembly is acting in good faith and they're not trying to pass unconstitutional legislation. Yeah. But I mean, that's where that's where the the Alberta Sovereignty Act gets so squirrely, because, as you said earlier, one of the authors has been like, oh, no, it's totally unconstitutional. (laughs) Yeah, Um, we did that that on purpose. You're like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. If if you've said, oh, no, we're trying to be unconstitutional and then you pass that law. I feel like that's probably one of the exceptions where where the lieutenant governor would have the rights to say, I mean, you guys. You kind of said the, the quiet part out loud here. Um, so I think that's about it for tonight because I got two batteries that are about to die and apparently a boatload of technical problems to troubleshoot. So I want to thank, again, everybody who uh, listened tonight. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, we will be back next week uh, to have a, a, a big conversation. We're going to try to center it around uh, maybe some 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 voting recommendations for people who are struggling for who to vote for in the UCP leadership race and watch for Thursday because we've got our conversation with Dr. Angela Grace and it's, it's, it's a barn burner. I know I say that a lot about a lot of our episodes and I mean it about a lot of our episodes, but in particular, the, the revelations that Dr. Grace brings to the table about how she was treated by, uh, certain powers that be within the NDP and the way that quite frankly, they tried to misrepresent what she has done um, over her career is, is it's pretty shocking is what I'll say. So we're dropping that on Thursday, Tuesday for our Patreon sponsors. Thank you again, everybody for hanging out, sticking around. We will see you next week. Take care of yourselves and keep the conversation going.